You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone. This is Jennifer Stock, and you're listening to Ocean Currents on KWMR. And on this show, we talk about the blue part of our planet, the ocean. We talk about natural history, conservation, research, exploration, and ways for us land-based folks to learn more and get involved. I bring this show to you from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four amazing and unique national marine sanctuaries off the California coast working to protect the unique and diverse marine ecosystems we have here in California. So we have a lot to cover today, so I want to jump right in. While California is spared of the oil and gas development for five more years by the president's recent announcement, the announcement opens up other areas that are abundant in marine wildlife in the Atlantic and Arctic Ocean. If you tuned in last month or if you caught the podcast episode, I had Ricky Ott on the air Um, on March 1st, talking a lot about the impact oil can have on a coastal economy and an ecosystem in detail. So if you want to catch up on oil impacts, come back to our website, cordellbank.noaa.gov, to catch that. But today, we are going to look at alternative sources of energy from the ocean that are not hydrocarbon-based. Generating technologies for getting power from the ocean include tidal power, wave power, ocean thermal energy conversion, ocean currents, ocean winds, and salinity gradients. Of these, the three most well-developed technologies are tidal power, ocean thermal energy conversion, and wave power. While tidal power requires large tidal differences, which in the U.S. occur only in Maine and Alaska, ocean thermal energy conversion is limited to tropical regions such as Hawaii and to a portion of the Atlantic coast. But wave energy has a more general application with a lot of potential along the California coast. The western coastline has the highest wave potential in the United States. In California, the greatest potential is along the northern coast, of which we are situated here in Point Reyes. So today we are going to talk about this, how this potential technology is being tested here and discuss its potential, as well as the trade-offs that could exist It's pretty interesting to think that the very thing that makes this coast so productive with marine life is also potential generating um, a valid, sustainable source of energy. So we'll discuss this topic of wave energy with Laura Engeman, who is a project manager with the California Ocean Protection Council, working on this effort. So stay with us. We'll be right back. I am joined on the phone by Laura Engeman of the California Ocean Protection Council. Laura has been with the council for three years and has a master's in international environmental policy from the Monterey Institute of International Studies. She has been tracking the offshore wave energy testing and development in California on behalf of the council. So welcome, Laura. You're live on the air. Great. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks for joining me today. Um, First, I'd like to start off asking a little bit more about the California Ocean Protection Council and its role. What role does it play 
in ocean protection matters? Sure. So a lot of folks aren't necessarily familiar, that familiar with the California Ocean Protection Council. We were actually developed, um, uh, we were created as a separate council about five years ago. And um, sort of part of the impetus for creating us was some of the um, larger ocean policy reports that came out from the Pew Commissions and the um, Ocean Commission um, about five, five or six years ago. And um, the focus of the Ocean Protection Council was to develop uh, an innovative um, collaborative agency. And um, by agency, we were, I'll explain a little bit more, but um, we are actually um, made up of a board that is representative of those agencies that have mandates or responsibilities over ocean and coastal management and to... Um, address some of the issues of uh, management um, disjointedness, I would say, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. or some of the, uh, the connections between our wildlife agencies, our resource agencies, our water quality, um, you know, our habitat needs, um, to address those needs on a more comprehensive um, level. The Ocean Protection Council has a board um, board members that are representative from the California EPA, and the chair is currently the um, secretary of the Natural Resources Agency. Um, and under the Natural Resources Agency, we have things like the Department of Fish and Game um, and the Resources Agency itself, um, as well as things like the State Lands Commission, which has authority over our seabed. And so the idea is that the Ocean Protection Council can um, provide some value as far as connecting these agencies and finding sort of gaps and overlaps where we can improve the way the state manages these resources and also um, address uh, maybe more of an ecosystem-based approach. So instead of each agency having its responsibility for a specific habitat or a specific species, we kind of look at the broader issue and try and create sort of a joint joint management plans or joint strategies for addressing some of those issues. And obviously a big one that's come up is climate change over the last few years, so that's a perfect example of how a number of agencies have to sort of sit down together and work on that. And um, the Ocean Protection Council's main mission is to, um, like I said, improve management, but through um, policy recommendations. So we recommend policies at the state and national level. And then we also um, invest funds in critical areas um, necessary either for management or research. So um, we invest funds in everything from fisheries um, reform to research that happens um, on monitoring the ocean to um, putting in money to the Marine Life Protection Act process and um, gathering data for that effort, um, as well as, like I said, climate change, invasive species, water quality. It's a wide, wide portfolio. The big, the big hit list of not, must must do items in terms of research. It's it's great. So I take it that there's uh, some money being invested in looking at the research in terms of wave energy. So let's talk a little bit about the wave energy stuff that you are following. Sure. Um, just to back up for folks, because earlier I mentioned a couple different ways that there are technologies involved of getting power from the ocean, and wave energy seems to be one of the ones that sticks around as having a real potential. But when did it really hit the scenes in terms of being a viable technology and really start hitting the ground getting tested in the ocean? 
You know, I think, I believe there was sort of some initial interest in wave energy, um, you know, about a decade ago, but um, most, uh, mostly those technologies didn't quite pan out, and so the interest in, in the, and the um, viability of the technology sort of uh, went into the background for a while. And then over the last couple of years, there has been a resurgence of newer technologies that are um, proving more viable for the industry. And most of that originally occurred in Europe. So we saw, we saw a few companies start to really move forward um, in the U.K. and Portugal in terms of having more of a, a design on paper and getting some support from um, financial partners as well as the government. And then, um, obviously, those companies began to look elsewhere for other potential areas where they could um, test or demonstrate their technologies. And um, the first firm that really sort of took a look at that was the Electric Power Research Institute. Um, did a, a number of reports, I would say about three years ago. They issued a number of reports that... Um, were general assessments of in the U.S. what the potential was for offshore wind, offshore wave, and tidal energy in California and the U.S. And what they sort of came up with were these maps that showed that there was strong potential for you know offshore wind development along the East Coast and some along the West Coast. And then there was um, the most viable areas for wave resources were on the West Coast out here, um, with mainly Point Conception North. And then there was some tidal um, power possibilities in places like Puget Sound and then um, with the possibility of San Francisco Bay. Mm -hmm. So I think with Electric Power Research Institute, information really provided um, a foundation for um, some of the companies to really take a, a closer look. And um, that's when we saw sort of a flurry of companies taking a look at the West Coast as, as possible areas to do further research yeah. and uh, test their technologies. So how does it actually work? It seems that um, from the research I was doing, there's a couple different ways wave energy can work. Could you talk about some of those different platforms of how does it sure. physically create energy for our grid? Well, I will um, throw the caveat out that I'm not an engineer first. That's perfect. <laughs> so I'll try and describe this in broad terms. Great. Um, but the wave energy technologies at this point in time, there um, have been sort of discussed four different categories of technologies, although now it's expanding to five and six. But I will also throw the disclaimer out there that um, these are some of the technologies that are more proven, and there seems to be a new one every week. So <laughs> this is not the end-all, be-all. Um, there's a lot of innovative, uh, really fascinating ideas for, um, for these types of devices. So um, I will give you kind of a general idea just so it's a little bit more of a tangible picture. So the, um, the one that's most, uh, most often looked at first is the uh, buoy system. And I think some of you may have seen the news article about the buoy that was tested off of the um, Oregon coast that uh, ended up not functioning properly with a with a bilge system and, and sunk but the basic basic technology is really um, is really based on the NOAA buoys and it's um, actually a floating buoy but then it is uh, moored down to the actual seabed floor and um, and when the wave uh, wave moves through the buoy actually just rises and falls with the wave 
And when it rises and falls, it's creating its own sort of power within that buoy system. So it's just moving up and down and generating mm-hmm. power along kind of a cable line. Um, so uh, that's that's what's called a point absorber, absorber, absorber I guess I would say, um, in some of this um, research on wave energy technologies. And then you have what's called um, a, an attenuator. Um, and that one we sort of refer to as the snake-like looking device. <laughs> um, it's a device mainly developed by one company called, um, it's called the Palamas System. Mm-hmm. And what it looks like is um, uh, sort of a, a train chain system. So it's a number of floating um, pieces on top of, they're on top of the water as opposed to being more to the seafloor that float um, perpendicular to the shoreline. And so when the wave comes through, it actually moves those. There's usually like four connected pieces. It moves those four pieces up and down with the wave, and it creates kind of a, um, a joint movement between the two, between the actual pieces. I'm not sure if I'm describing this that well. It's hard it could, without a visual. Well, um, one thing it re- reminds me of when I saw the pictures of it and the way you're describing it with the joints is sometimes you see those really annoying things on the side of the road that are are powered by air fans that have like, it's like a body or some type of a character to advertise a car dealership or whatnot. And it has these joints that kind of flexible, are flexible and whatnot. And the Palamas kind of reminds me of that when I see the pictures of it. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So they, instead of going up and down in, in the water column, it sits on top of the surface of the water and its joints just flex back and forth, which then creates, um, produces energy by by that movement. And um, I think one of the benefits of that technology has been um, by, you know, marketed by that company is that you don't necessarily need huge amounts of swell. It's just a consistent wave movement because the more that flexes, more often that that flexes, the bet, the more energy it'll produce. So mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be a huge, huge wave. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is um, what's called an overtopping device. Um, and an overtopping device is any kind of system where um, it would float. Uh, there'd be sort of a hmm, let's see uh, something that sits up on top of the water. When the wave comes through, the wave actually dumps into a holding tank of some sort, and then then it would flush through back out into the ocean. And while it's while it is being pumped back out to the ocean underneath, it would move a turbine. Uh-huh. Um, and some of the, we can talk a little bit more about, you know, what potential effects would be, but obviously with that, the water is moving through a system, and so there's a little bit more concern with um, with animals or species or, or other things getting stuck. Uh-huh. There's also other ones that I would say that are coming out now, that, and they look more like a, they're called, well, they're, they're similar to the tidal devices in that they look more like a sea fan type device, and they sort of just swing back and forth. Mm-hmm. Similarly to um, you know something that's floating in the in actual water that would be either more to the seabed or the seafloor. So there's a number of those new devices that are becoming really popular. Interesting. So the general gist is somehow capturing the movement of the surface of the water or energy driven up by winds and waves, and somehow uh, capturing that to be able to create um, energy. One of the things that I read that I was kind of surprised at, I'm wondering if you can help explain this, it says the incidence of wave power at deep ocean sites 
is three to eight times the wave power at adjacent coastal sites, which I would think that there'd be more energy at those coastal sites where there's a lot more energy released. But it sounds from what I'm reading here that there's more at a deeper site. And I'm wondering, can you explain that at all? Well, I mean, we do have, yeah, the, the wave resources, as they're called, or our wave energy resources are um, better in the north coast, which is where we have a deeper um, continental shelf. Mm. And so, like I said, it's not always the, um, it's not always the height of the wave. I think when we think wave power, we often think of the size of the wave and the height of the wave, but it's the wave surge that you're talking about. So it's it's the sort of volume of water and the consistency of the power of that volume of water mm-hmm. as opposed to the sort of amount of waves crashing on the beach that you would see. Okay. So we are talking, instead of thinking about like right on the shoreline, we're actually talking about much more, we're talking about wave movements that are farther offshore. Got it. So these aren't necessarily waves that are actually crashing. These are more swell movements. And so you're talking about a volume of water and the the rate at which it moves and the the rate at which it moves, how often, as I said, you know, I think a lot of what they're looking for is something that's more consistent as opposed to stronger. Right, because the ones that break at the coast, those are inter- intermittent. Those are not always going to be breaking, whereas that constant movement is going to constantly be working right. to create. Got it. I think for those of us that don't really know a lot about ocean energy and waves, it's confusing. I remember when I was learning about waves back in marine science, it's very in-depth in terms of where the energy actually comes from and where you measure it and whatnot. So that actually helped ring a couple bells for me in terms of where most of that energy exists. So here's a little bit about, here's some background. We've talked a little bit about some of the potential wave generation devices and how this um, potentially works. Uh, For those just tuning in, you're listening to Ocean Currents, and my guest today is Laura Engeman from the California Ocean Protection Council, who is helping follow the uh, development of wave energy technology in California. And here more locally, just north of us, um, there is some testing going on. Sonoma County Water Agency has recently initiated a process by buying rights to develop some wave energy. Can you give us some background on this project and um, give us an update of where they are in their development? Sure. So in Sonoma County, there was originally there was some other interest, I believe, from maybe it was another energy company um, a while a couple years ago, and um, they they backed out of that inter- uh, out of that area. But um, at the same time, there was you know sort of this growing interest in the entire coast, and so Pacific Gas and Electric started to move forward with some projects, um, project ideas, and so some of the local communities. Um, including the Sonoma County Board of Supervisors, began to look at this this issue and discuss the uh, benefits of having sort of a community-owned process and, um, you know, feasibility project. And so the Sonoma County Board of Supervisors discussed the idea of, you know, testing devices that could power you know, Sonoma County energy needs. And so they specifically, I believe, gave um, the Sonoma County Water Agency the thumbs up to go ahead and move forward with submitting projects 
uh, they're called preliminary permit applications through the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And basically what that means is you get a three-year time frame to study an area and when you and during that time you sort of reserve that space so nobody else no other company or entity can come in and reserve that area so currently the Sonoma County Water uh, Agency has preliminary permits for off the coast of Sonoma and they have a number of areas that they're looking at but they are in that three-year sort of research stage. So at, at this point, their main objective is to raise funds and identify research that they believe needs to be done in order to determine whether those areas are even feasible for wave energy and, you know, what maybe what types of technology and, you know, who would benefit from that power. And I believe they're looking at the um, benefactor of the power would actually be the water agency itself. And that would probably be used to move the water, moving their water, basically. Moving their water. It's part of their larger strategy. So they they want to be sort of a self-sustaining clean energy agency in general. So this is part of their strategy for finding all other alternatives of power. Correct. Mm-hmm. Now, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, they have the authority within three miles. Is that correct? Correct. And then beyond that, it's the mar- the um, Marine Minerals Management Service? The Minerals Management Minerals. Service. And that goes out fe- till, to 200 miles, like federal waters? Yes. Okay. So, so Minerals Management Service is usually what we're, we're fami- the agency that we're most familiar with if you um, have followed anything to do with offshore oil rigs. Mm-hmm. So Minerals Management Service has, been, has historically been the agency that has the leases offshore for things like offshore oil um, drilling. But the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission typically has jurisdictions, and, and you may also be very familiar with this, over dams mm-hmm. and those energy uh, structures that are within um, streams and what they call navigable waters. So this is where the confusion came um, early on over which of these agencies actually has authority over these projects in either the state waters, which are navigable waters, according to that definition, or, you know, offshore areas, which are the Minerals Management Service jurisdiction typically. And what it, what has resulted is there now is an MOU between those two agencies. There's, there's, there's a bit of a shared um, approach. Mm-hmm. So within the state waters, um, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission um, will issue these preliminary permits for studies, and they will also issue licenses for pilot projects, which can be um, approximately five years, but now they're looking at maybe extending that to 10 years because um, folks like pg e have said that they can't do it within a five-year time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, um, and then, you know, licenses, actual commercial licenses for anything that would happen in state waters. Um, and then Minerals Management Service would have to issue a lease for anything that happens outside of state waters, but that project would also get a license from the Federal Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So it's kind of it's a little confusing. It is a little confusing. <laughs> within I can see. state waters, you're one agency. Within with out of state waters, you actually have to get both. You have to get approval from both. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So, what is more, um, the Minerals Management Service regulatory policy for our alternative energy technology? Do they have a policy? Well, they have. Uh, they recently, under the most recent Energy Act, they now have an, an 
what's Alternative Energy and Alternate Use Program. And I encourage folks if you're interested in that program, they just they released that final rule be a little over a year ago, year and a half ago. And they've been actually their their website has some great information on their program. They've been really good about outreach and education on that. So that includes any sort of off any alternate alternative renewable energy source. So they have jurisdictions over offshore wind mm-hmm. and wave energy and anything else that you could possibly think of in that area. <laughs> right. And then um, and then alternate use. So you know part of that is you know what if somebody wanted to use an oil rig to then put you know an offshore wind a wind turbine on top of it. You know there's sort of this gray area of we don't quite know you know, what innovative ideas somebody might come up with. So that's where that sort of alternate use. Yeah, there's a lot of potential. And I'm imagining at this point, listeners are probably wondering, what about the environment? And we are going to focus on that part um, in a little bit. We have just a few more minutes left before we take a break. And on the second half, I'd really like to talk about how we assess the environmental impacts and look at the trade-offs there. But before we do that, are there other projects happening in California where some of these may be able to share ideas, share technology. Like, um, I think there's something happening in Humboldt Bay as well as maybe Southern California, right? Santa Barbara region. Or so the project is the furthest along, and it's still in the very beginning stages. But project that's furthest along is um, Pacific Gas and Electric. Their project called the Wave Connect, and they actually have two sites under that one project, and. Um, you can go to their website, pgne.com, I think, backslash WaveConnect, and there's a whole bunch of information about meetings and um, what they're up to there. They basically um, are looking at a site off of Humboldt Bay, um, and they have a, uh, a, a committee of, of all sorts of stakeholders and local government, and, and they also have a permitting committee with all the agencies involved. And they looked at a large sort of area outside Humboldt Bay. They've now narrowed it down to a more specific project area where they um, submitted an application to FERC for a pilot project. And the idea behind that is that they, as a utility, um, are not necessarily um, confident in one specific technology. So they're going to set up basically a testing facility where they can um, test I think it's three to four different types of technologies in that area. Mm-hmm. And they'll, they'll basically run data, you know, run those technologies and collect data on those technologies, everything from environmental impacts to energy productivity in those areas, and then sort of determine from there what they, you know, think is the most, you know, effective technology or viable technology, either for that area or even more likely for offshore. Mm-hmm. That um, the the wave resources are sort of better offshore. Um, I think that a lot of the companies realize that, you know, aesthetically people don't necessarily want to see those technologies. So they, you know, they're looking at the sort of farther out for these larger scale. But for right now, because of the cost of maintaining and sort of checking on these test pilot, most these test projects, they're in, they're being proposed in state waters mm-hmm. in that three mile range. So they want to test like three to four devices uh, by Humboldt Bay. And then their Central Coast project that they're now um, looking at starting um, is off of Vandenberg Air Force Base, 
um, just north of Santa Barbara, and that area they have um, an agreement with the Air Force Base to use some of their facilities and to maybe generate some energy for the Air Force Base as kind of a test project as well. And they're hoping that one, the Humboldt Bay project, which is a little earlier and more advanced, you know, if they get a couple, a year or two of data in that project first, they'll be able to then see, you know, already see which technologies they are more pre- are preferred and maybe, you know, build out a little bit more in the Central Coast by taking those one or two technologies and, and putting a few more. So the one in Humboldt may only be like four devices. The one in, cent- in the Central Coast may be a larger project to sort of move one step further. Excellent. Thank you for that overview of those those specific projects. We are going to take a, a quick break right now, so if you wouldn't mind just hanging on the line, Laura, that would be great. Um, we'll be back in just a second. We're back. You're listening to Ocean Currents on KWMR. This is Jennifer Stock, and I have Laura Engeman on the phone from the California Ocean Protection Council, who is following wave energy projects in California. And before I get into the environmental uh, concerns and trade-offs and, and research that's needed, one thing I haven't really asked about is the potential for actual energy production in terms of megawatts. And how how many how much energy can be created? Do you think by these projects, or do we even know that yet? I I would say that the Electric Power Research Institute put out some pretty broad number megawatt estimates for sort of the West Coast and nationally. I think that there are there are a number of components to building a project that will determine how many megawatts a project would actually produce. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you're starting leading into the the issues of environmental impacts and, and, um, and other trade-offs, that's exactly, those are exactly the components that would determine how many megawatts a project would, would actually produce. So, mm-hmm. for instance, off of maybe Sonoma Coast, you know, you you could do a full maybe commercial build out to maximize the amount of megawatts that you you would want to produce, but you know you may end up with you know a couple hundred devices in order to get to that point if the devices aren't extremely efficient. But you know, I don't think that most of the local communities nor the residents of California necessarily want the entire Sonoma Coast covered with wave energy you know, devices. So it's a lot, um, nor may that, that may even not be efficient or cost effective for the developer. So there's a number of components that will dictate how big a project would be and how much energy it would produce. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a tough question. Yeah, I can imagine too, just extracting the energy, the whole process of getting the technology in place requires energy and maintaining it and whatnot. So the whole cost benefit analysis there would be interesting. Right. And you have to run transmission cables to shore, and there has to be a facility on shore. And so you're you're looking at some pretty high costs for the energy developer 
who would actually look at, uh, who would actually build these out. And so as far as, you know, being a new technology and um, being sort of in its early phases, it's more likely that folks would start with smaller projects and then, you know, slowly build to something a little larger. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, what's been kind of seen in the, in, um, in other countries as well. Like I said, the UK and Portugal have looked at um, testing devices. And, and there is, they're just as far as we are. As you know, they may put in devices before we do, but they're still just um, demonstration projects and not full-scale commercial. Okay, interesting. Good to know that. So while we're talking here and, and hearing about the movements of these things and these joints and the energy, I'm also thinking about this part of the coast that is just so important for the food web and important to commercial fisheries and. I'm thinking about the biologists, the the researchers that are trying to learn about these regions and thinking about the potential impact of this hardware in the ocean. So what are some of the ways that you are encouraging development of um, environmental impact reports in terms of planning how to assess that? Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the first things that we did a couple years ago when this issue came up and um, there just seemed to be this huge amount of uncertainty, which there still is, but, you know, about what, what this was and, you know, what what type of technology, if it had even any similar characteristics to anything else that, we're, that we work with now. Um, the, uh, my agency, the Ocean Protection Council, uh, got together with the um, California Energy Commission, which has a program called um, their peer program, which often um, produces a number of reports and research for energy impacts related to um, renewable energy devices. And so we um, got together to co-fund just an initial sort of evaluation of what the potential um, environmental effects might be and what also um, the potential sort of socioeconomic effects might be because that's also a a really big um, issue as far as trade-offs for for the uses of of our marine environment. And um, so I uh, we put together kind of a team of researchers, um, which included um, John Lerger from the Bodega Marine Lab, um, Bill Seideman, um, who now works for his own firm, the Fairlawn Institute for Ecosystem Advanced Ecosystem Research. And I apologize <laughs> if I get that. Um, it's a long acronym, but um, uh, and then um, uh, I had um, some folks from UC Santa Cruz um, under the guidance of um, Professor Ramundi down there to look at some benthic issues, um, and then um, leading kind of the paper was um, Pete Nelson from who was formerly with the Sea Grant program up in Humboldt and now works for a firm called HT Harvey and Associates. Um, took a look at. Um, some of the fisheries issue, and then we also had a whole chapter on the um, socioeconomics. So we kind of tried to to run the full gamut of looking at the potential effects and just give a very, very initial cursory look at, you know, what we might be talking about. And some of the um, ideas that came out of that was that, you know, a lot of these devices would be moored to the seafloor. And so obviously you're tackling with some benthic habitat disturbance. we imagine that most of them would be on sort of sandy habitat as opposed to rocky, but um, 
you know, that's not a definite um, at this point. And it would depend on how many devices. Obviously, you know, five devices with moorings on the seafloor isn't, isn't that much different from other infrastructure that we have out there. But if you're talking about 100 different mooring um, devices, that may be a significant impact to that benthic um, environment. Um, other issues that, uh, that were thought of are just the amount of sort of infrastructure in the ocean as far as, um, uh, fish attraction. Um, so, would at that change the population, you know, um, dynamics of the area if you now had, you know, similar to rigs and other buoy systems, it's often act as an attractant for certain species. Sort of like an artificial habitat type right. thing. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you're talking about, you know, if you have. If you have 25 to 50 devices in the water, that, that presents a whole new artificial habitat that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in addition to that, if you, um, depending on the types of devices, uh, you know, the buoys are um, often sh- shown as a, um, an array, they call it an array of buoys, where they are linked with sort of cables, they're linked together. And so, you know, how those cables are linked together and whether there would be any issues as far as entanglement or um, by marine mammals. Um, Or the two sort of biggest unknown issues are um, acoustics, electromagnetic fields, with that many sort of cables out there or these various devices moving up and down, you know, how much noise would they produce and and, um, what sort of... Um, impacts might they have on like, larger species such as whale migrations? Mm-hmm. You know, would they avoid the area completely, which would be a good thing as far as avoiding impacts. However, is that going to significantly change their migration patterns or their feeding patterns, et cetera? Um, and then some other interesting um, ideas that came up were, um, you know, with a, with a small project, you're not really affecting the... Um, wave movement not much, but with a larger project where you have multiple devices sort of taking the power out of the waves, essentially, mm-hmm. um, and sort of the estimates have, every, have been everywhere from sort of 3% to 15%, would there be sort of what's called the shadow effect behind that array, meaning that in the environment um, between that uh, array and shore, would there be sort of a reduced amount of wave power and would that affect maybe intertidal zones or the habitat that exists that may rely a little bit more on that wave power, Mm -hmm. um, especially along the north coast? So, you know, areas like estuaries or sediment movement or, um, you know, specific sensitive intertidal communities, those are things that are sort of considerations for that. Definitely. Those are big ones. Um, Also, I'm imagining seabirds maybe being attracted to areas to land and maybe um, finding things to hit. They, they often are attracted artificially to lights uh, exactly. and whatnot. So, yeah, and, and with, the, uh, with, this, with the attractants, you know, we do have some information out there based on other infrastructure, offshore infrastructure, but, yes, hauling out, <laughs> um, you know, creating more um, issues as far as, you know, seal haul-outs or, um, or attracting seabirds, um, as well as, you know, maybe affecting their feeding patterns as well. Right. And then, um, and then in the socioeconomics, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, areas that have significant crab fisheries, 
um, you know, marine uses as far as um, boating and kayaking and other, if you're in state waters and you're closer to shore, um, are are they going to be taking up areas that are frequented by other marine uses that maybe we value? Or, you know, are there issues of um, collision with, you know, other um, major maritime industries or shipping channels or um, other boat traffic, Coast Guard issues. So there's a number of things to think about Definitely. in a project. Yeah, you highlighted all the ones I wanted to, um, specifically the navigation one. I just was, you know, this coast is littered with shipwrecks from historic uh, transiting here without a lot of navigational aids, and we still have unfortunate losses with with navigation aids in place. But with the pilot studies that are going to go into it, into or the pilot projects that will eventually get into the water, will there be a monitoring program in place with that to help look at these issues um, in some in some level? Absolutely. As part of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission's pilot license, um, there are requirements for monitoring the environment, um, and the state or regulatory agencies will also be informing those if um, they may be issuing their own permits and licenses as well, but we're also looking at, um, you know, how to incorporate those into the FERC license. And the FERC license does have some language that's built into it that basically outlines that if um, if there are significant impacts to the environment demonstrated, then that project needs to be decommissioned. I see. So um, the Minerals Management Service has some similar language as well, sort of precautionary measures as far as testing projects and um, and not leaving them in just because when uh, when we know that it's exceeding the thresholds. And like I said, um, with the acoustics and like electromagnetic fields, those are an area where we really don't know that much at this point in time. But you know, things like that where we could look at certain thresholds of acoustic you know, interference or disturbance and and try and monitor that and determine whether, you know, the developer can change the design of the of the technology to reduce that or, you know, whether there's um, significantly more disturbance than originally thought. Wonderful. We're running, I just want to, we're going to need to wrap it up here in a few minutes. And it sounds like with your role, you really have a special um role in the sense that you bring together many different uh, agencies, authorities, uh, permitting agencies, all the different players. You have that ability to kind of uh, bring everybody together, which is a really neat role. How has the process going to reach out? When will the process reach out to the public and, vas- and ask for public input into the into mm-hmm. these? Um, well, as part of, you know, our efforts, we I've been trying to work with some of the early developers like Pacific Gas and Electric to really um, help encourage them as well to, to do these um, stakeholder um, processes or have, you know, a, a steering committee basically set up. And, and they have been. So if you're in a region where um, the, the Pacific Gas and Electric projects are happening, um, they have requests out there for um, – for anybody that wants to sort of volunteer themselves to be part of their committees. So I think they've actually done a pretty good job at doing that. And um, and I think they're also establishing a model with which others are looking to. Um, so I would say that for specific projects, the um, proponents often have a specific meeting schedule and process for input. Um, but in addition to that, 
Um, I think that at the state level, we're looking at a number of uh, research topics um, and ideas, and um, I'm hoping that I can uh, encourage the scientific community to really start looking at this issue and using it um, as, you know, topics with their students. So um, I think more and more we'll see um, opportunities for for performing some of that research, and there's also um, a lot of federal dollars and investment and research in this area that we're increasingly seeing um, over the next couple of years. That's good. Um, Are there any websites you would like to direct people to to get involved or to learn more and anything else you'd like to share about the work that you're doing? Um, Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, the the main websites for the projects right now that I know are up are the PG&E project. So that one's just www.pge.com and then I think backslash WaveConnect. And then the other other project for Sonoma County, um, I believe that one is um, easiest, I think, to find through their Sonoma County Water Agency website. Mm -hmm. Mm Um, and they have a little they have a little bit of information there. There's also some contact um, names and phone numbers there as well. Fantastic. And how about for the California Ocean Protection Council? Sure. So the Ocean Protection Council is working on updating our website. <laughs> I apologize, <laughs> but we should probably have some additional information available on our site um, in the next week or so. And we are at www.opc.ca.gov. Fantastic. Wonderful. Well, thanks, Laura, so much for sharing a big overview of a lot of different things. It sounds like it's so initial, and there's a lot that's still to come in terms of developing this energy source and really identifying the impacts that we could have. But I think the biggest thing that we'll all be having to think about is what are the trade-offs that we have to generate non-hydrocarbon energy for something that could have an impact on the environment, too. And so that'll be really interesting to see how we are going to evolve in our thinking in regards to that. Thank you so much. Do you want to share anything else before we end up? I think that's it. I think people should, you know, feel free to, you know, look around. There's a couple of of folks that are following this issue, but it is a fascinating one that changes, you know, like I said, the technologies that are changing very quickly and other things. But um, it is one that I think, as you mentioned, offers the state, as far as us meeting our renewable energy goals, which we have some very aggressive renewable energy goals in the state, um, you know, it is an interesting um, avenue for us to take a look at and see if, even if it's at the local level of producing power for local coastal communities that are more isolated, such as the Humboldt, you know, the North Coast and Humboldt Bay, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it affords an opportunity that, you know, may be there if we can make it work, like you said. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate you taking the whole time today to talk about it, uh, Wave Energy with us, and good luck following the process. All right. Great. Thank you. Take care. Bye. We've just been talking with Laura Engeman from the California Ocean Protection Council, and we've been discussing a wave energy technology development here in California. And in just a few minutes, I'm com- I'll come back with a couple announcements of other things that are happening around here. Stay with us.
here by dawn. Sleep, little baby, as I sing you this song. And if you are quiet, you'll hear the wind blow that fills up the sails, bringing honey boats home. The sails and the ropes are all made of silk, woven by silkworms made from their own milk. Wood of the hulls, the tallest of trees, making honey boats strong for crossing the sea. Honeyboats are coming, they'll be here by dawn. Sleep, little baby, as I sing you their song. If you are quiet, you'll hear the wind blow. The sails up the sails, bringing honeyboats home. And that was the Elderberries featuring Jenny Steelquist. So um, earlier, we were talking about wave energy development in California and the technology potential, but also some of the trade-offs that need to be examined in terms of impact to wildlife. And um, very interesting process to follow along. And something that I was just reflecting on is suppose this wave energy technology generates 10% of our country's energy and 10% comes from solar and 10% from wind, 10% from hydropower. Um, we could be on our way to developing energy that relies less and less on hydrocarbons. So it's a very interesting time for research and development for these technologies. And I think we all need to just stay mindful of what is involved with uh, the development of them because all these little pieces can add up to be something very significant. Have a, just a few announcements. Uh, this Thursday, we have a double header of Sanctuary Advisory Council meetings on Thursday. Both the Cordell Bank Sanctuary Advisory Council and the Gulf of the Farallons Sanctuary Advisory Council have their meetings here in Point Reyes at uh, the Point Reyes National Seashore uh, Association building. Uh, the Cordell Bank Sanctuary Advisory Council will be meeting at 945. And in the Red Barn building of the Point Reyes National Seashore, the Gulf of the Farallons Advisory Council will be meeting. And in the afternoon, uh, and these are all public meetings, so anybody can come, in the afternoon will be a joint session between both the Gulf of the Farallands and Cordell Bank councils, and they'll be discussing um, a climate change site scenario planning process and how are we planning for climate change within these areas. Um, and there'll be an update on an ocean acidification task force that the sanctuaries are leading up, how to deal with ocean acidification as well as a, traf a vessel traffic on sanctuary resources discussion and salmon as a sanctuary resource, uh, resource uh, discussion as well. So very interesting topics. At the Gulf of the Farallons meeting, um, earlier in the morning, there'll be an update by a shark researcher, Michael Domier, of the Marine Conservation Science Institute about some recent tagging efforts at the Farallon Islands. So that should be a rather interesting update. You can go to farallons.noaa.gov for the Sanctuary Advisory Council agenda for Gulf of the Farallons and cordellbank.noaa.gov for the agenda for that meeting. So this Thursday, very interesting, lots of things going on. Uh, there's a couple other things this Saturday in Monterey is a free event at the California State University, uh, Monterey Bay University Center. And every year, the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary hosts a conference that focuses on science that's happening in the sanctuaries and how this is improving or 
improving our knowledge of the marine environment. And this year it's focusing on Voices of Hope, Science and Innovation for the Ocean. And looking at experts will share uh, talks that are engaging and creative and cutting-edge science and technologies to help solve critical problems facing the environment. So I bet you there'll be something about wave energy there. There's um, talks and a poster session, and it's free all day from 8 to 3 p.m. And that is at the California State University Monterey Bay University Center in Seaside, California. So check that out. You can look at the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary website for more information on that. Lastly, I got another really cool news release through email that I just had to share. And this is through the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, MBARI. They have released a new website called jellywatch.org. And this is actually a guest that I've had on my show before, Steve Haddock. This is a website that he has generated, and it's a way to allow people that visit our shorelines that have discovered huge uh, jellies washing up or huge amounts of jellies to report them. And it's somewhat of a social networking, marine biology monitoring type of website. And you can um, go ahead on and and log in where you've seen jellyfish wash up, take pictures and share them, um, compare with sightings from other beachcombers around the globe. So it looks like a really cool new thing, jellywatch.org. I'm hoping to have Steve come back on at some point to talk a little bit about uh, the goals of this site and what he's hoping to learn. Having huge, uh, larger jellyfish populations is one of the um, expectations of climate change as we change the acidification of the ocean and, and nutrients, There's expect, uh, we're expecting to see a lot more jellies rise up to the top in terms of abundance. So that should be an interesting source. So that is going to wrap it up for me today on Ocean Currents. If you ever have comments or questions, you can email me directly at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. You can pass... Uh, Always catch past episodes of Ocean Currents on our website, the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary website at cordellbank.noaa.gov. And I'll be back next month with students from the West Marin School talking about their watershed investigations from the school year. So I hope you'll tune in then. Thanks again for tuning in today. My name is Jennifer, and I'm signing off. listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.